our kids really enjoy going to the circus, uh, especially if it's a, a live circus. We've watched uh, the uh, television circuses a number of times. But uh, a number of years ago, and maybe some of you saw this on the TV, they had a, a television circus program where they had a, a Bengal tiger act. And uh, one evening, the trainer got into the cage and was going to go through his routine. They locked the cage, they put the lights on the uh, cage, and the cameras began to zoom in. And he went through his regular routine, but halfway through the routine, the lights went out. The electricity had gone off for 20 or 30 seconds, and with a little tiny kitchen chair and a whip, it didn't seem like a great advantage that he had over these tigers. But anyway, he survived, and uh, uh, when the lights came back on, he went through his uh, performance, finished it off rather calmly, at least appeared to be rather calmly, and afterwards, the TV interviewed him. How many of you remember that show? None of, oh, one, Jonathan watched it with me. <laughs> but anyway, afterwards, they interviewed the tiger uh, trainer, and they said, what did you feel like when the lights went out? And he says, well, to be quite honest, a chill of fear came all over me because I knew they could see me, but I couldn't see them. And he says, then I got myself together because I realized they didn't know that I couldn't see them. And so I just kept cracking my whip, and I kept talking to them until the lights came back on. What I want to do this morning is I want to use that as a parable of life because there are many times where we feel like we're locked in a cage, locked in the dark, facing the tigers, and it's very easy to feel overwhelmed. And I'm not just talking about facing some of the invisible forces, the demonic forces that are out there, but also facing some of the things that people under communism and under Islam have faced, uh, the, the very people that those demonic forces are, are driving people such as in Russia or Romania or China. Now, some Christians have panicked and they've compromised. They've backed away. Uh, other Christians have successfully faced those tigers. Some, we're going to be seeing later, through martyrdom. Others uh, have survived. But in any case, God has caused these people to have an incredible impact upon those countries. Uh, have any of you read the book? It's a rather recent book by... Um, Barbara um, Vonderheide, it's called uh, Candles Behind the Wall. Candles Behind the Wall. I really recommend it. It's uh, filled with stories that have been uncovered from former, uh, the former Soviet Union and uh, 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 East Germany, uh, behind the Berlin Wall. I think that's where the title came from. And it shows how people who were outwardly powerless, powerless Christians, had a profound impact in changing those cultures. Uh, that book was uh, recently... Uh, reviewed by uh, George Roche III, some of you know about him, and he says it's the best book that he's seen outlining some of the reasons for the collapse of communism. And he pointed out, for example, that the Berlin Wall came down not so much because of politics and economics, and that's what you hear a lot about in the, uh, in the media, but he says this book documents a lot of information showing that it was spiritual. It was a spiritual battle that was going on uh, behind those walls. And there are other scholars who have said the same thing. Now, later on, not today, we're gonna, it's going to be a couple of weeks from now, we're going to see in chapter 2 that this image is a prophecy of the complete conquest. It's, it's a history uh, from the time of Daniel all the way through to the end of history where all nations will submit to the rule of King Jesus. There will be a total conquest through the preaching of the gospel. 
Now that's encouraging, looking to the future, but we're not living in that time. We're living in a period of darkness. And so I want to look at this introductory material that shows us how even during a time of darkness, we can successfully face the tigers of life, as it were. Next week, we're going to be seeing some of the actions and the attitudes that Christians themselves need to have, how we can stand in the gap when all humanism begins to crumble around us. But today, I want to spend our time looking at the fact that the tigers of life are not invincible. They have insecurities and fears and troubles too, and we tend to forget that, and we tend to panic. Uh, Rather than facing uh, the tigers in our culture, there are many evangelicals who are advocating retreat, full-scale retreat from culture. I read a book some years ago by an evangelical writer, and uh, I think it was a well-researched book, but this writer was showing step-by-step how we are moving toward a one-world government in various ways. You know, reading through that book, by the time I got to the end of the book, I was depressed out of my socks. It was an incredibly depressing book. And that writer, like many other evangelical writers, I believe, has been acting like the ten ten of the twelve spies who went into the land of Canaan. They were good spies. They had accurate information. They described the enemy to a T perfectly. And yet... They backed off from the tigers. They retreated from culture. They failed to take their task as they ought to have taken their task. See, Joshua and Caleb were willing to go into the land in spite of the tigers, as it were, that they were facing because they knew that their God was far greater. The rest of them had a grasshopper theology. They said, we are as grasshoppers in the eyes of the giants, and they discouraged the hearts of the people. It was the same information, and yet it was a different perspective on that information. Well, I want to be showing you that Daniel gives us Joshua and Caleb's perspective on life. Uh, It's a very realistic perspective. It says, yes, there are tigers out there. There's darkness. There's danger. But it's also optimistic. It says we can successfully face those. Yes, some of us will die, but Christ's kingdom will triumph. Now, it would have been very easy to be a discourager of Israel in those days. And I want to give you a little bit of background, historical background, to, to show that. Uh, First of all, the time that they were living in. Verse 1 says, Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. If you look in some of the older commentaries, you'll see that um, uh, liberals uh, used to say that this was a complete contradiction of chapter 1. There's no way you could reconcile the two passages because here it says it's in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar and chapter 1 says three years have gone by since Daniel's captivity. And uh, archaeology has demonstrated once again that the liberals know how to make fools out of themselves when they contradict the Scripture. This is so sensitive to the way the Babylonians did things. In the Babylonian chronological system, rather than having an overlapping of years, they made the first full year of the new king year number one. Otherwise, uh, they would be counting two years when in reality there would be one year in, in terms of their chronology. And so three years, almost three years, have gone by since um, uh, uh, Daniel was in captivity, but it was only two years uh, in, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Let me give you a background. In June of 605 B.C., Daniel was taken into captivity during one of Nebuchadnezzar's southern forays into Egypt. Now, at that time, he was only a general in his dad's army. His dad was Nabopolassar. You can name your next kid after him. Uh, I call him Nabi for short. Uh, but Nabopolassar, uh, 
That's what happens when you have spontaneous humor. It uh, <laughs> falls to the ground. Um, who was I talking about? Nebuchadnezzar, yes. One of his southern forays uh, uh, into Egypt, and his dad died then, so he went back to Babylon, and he, uh, his accession to the throne was in September of the same year. So there's really no contradiction whatsoever. It beautifully fits in with the Babylonian chronology, and it was in the year that he became king, in actuality, that uh, Daniel was conquered. So it's just, again, how amazing uh, the, uh, amazingly the Bible was put together. But here's the point. Once you realize what year it was that this was going on, you can understand why I say these were dark times indeed and that he was facing tigers, as it were, locked in a cage. Because by this time it seemed as if the true faith had been almost totally eclipsed by the aggressive reign of humanism. Now, chapter 1, we saw before, was already a dark period of time because Nebuchadnezzar had gone in, he'd conquered Egypt, he conquered Palestine, he'd conquered all, all of Syria. But by the time you get to chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had been catapulted into a position where he's no longer just a, a small chieftain who has managed to gather together uh, uh, some small tribes. He is now an emperor of a world empire. He controls everything. Now, it's true that Greece had not yet been conquered, but he didn't need to conquer Greece. He controlled Greece. He controlled trade. He controlled everything. And I want you to turn with me to, um, let's see here, verses 37 to 39 to see how extensive his reign was at this point of history. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, notice how universal this is, wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. It was amazing how quickly things went from many different um, empires to being a one-world empire. And you know, things can happen that quickly today. Those of you who are presuming upon the future with long-term debts and in other ways presume that the future is going to be exactly the same as it is today, you need to keep this in mind. Could we have a one, another one-world government? I mean, there really have only been four in the past. It's possible that we could have another one, and it could come very quickly. But secondly, does that mean that we need to despair? No. What this chapter shows is how feeble are the attempts of man to play God. And it's such an encouraging chapter. Men make lousy gods because they're always making mistakes. And every verse in verses 1 through 13 shows how unstable, how vulnerable, how weak Nebuchadnezzar was. Here was this mighty man, and yet it shows his feebleness. And Nebuchadnezzar actually recognizes it himself. Look at verse 1. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Uh, he was troubled. Now, he didn't know what the dream meant, but he might have taken a guess that it had something to do with him. Here was an image of a man, giant image of a man, that was ground to powder from a power from above. And he suspected, perhaps, maybe this means I will be overthrown. Who else would the man represent? And it explains, by the way, why he was not about to tell these people what his dream was. Because they could have used it as an excuse for one of the many conspiracies that was constantly brewing in the kingdom at that time. 
uh, just give you an idea of the kind of uh, air of conspiracy that was around there, two of the next three emperors were assassinated. And so it gives you a perspective why he's so paranoid about this group and why he tries uh, to kill them off. Every humanistic power in history has had similar internal problems, struggles, differences, uh, internal resistance, which God can use for the advance of his kingdom. And it's a neat thing when you study out God's orchestrating of historical events. Now, verse 1 not only hints at uh, his concern in terms of the time period of the troubles from within, why he's paranoid, but it hints that he recognizes he's got to deal with powers from above. He knows this is not just the spaghetti he ate last night. There's something supernatural about this dream, something he cannot control. And he wants to be in control of all things, and so he is very frustrated. Notice that the plural dreams is used here. The same dream was dreamed over and over again, and the Hebrew indicates an ongoing tense. And so he's dreamed this dream so many times that it's driving him nuts. It indicates he's losing sleep. Perhaps he's afraid even to go to bed and dream this dream uh, once again. And we need to keep in mind that the most powerful of rulers are merely men. They're not God. They're men. They're not invincible. They have the same diseases. They have the same sleeping problems and fears and frustrations that we have. In fact, the very fact that they are rulers means that they are targets from other people. And that ought to be encouraging for us. God uses those things for his own purposes. If we give too much credit to the conspiracies and the humanistic power, that whatever culture, whether it's an American culture or elsewhere, I think many times we fall into the trap of treating these people as if they are God robbing God of his sovereignty, robbing God of the authority that he really wields in his hand. We ought not to give more credit uh, to these humanistic uh, powers than they really deserve. In fact, if you're a conspiracy buff, I'll start you on a quest. Read Psalm 2. It's one of the key, key passages on conspiracies. There's been conspiracies all down through history, but it's not the way many conspiracy buffs uh, would look at it. That is a key, key passage on that. Well, let's go on. Look at some of the other weaknesses of the mighty. Verse 2 shows how dependent Nebuchadnezzar was on the others. Then the king gave command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and they stood before the king. Now here were representatives of the brightest of the bright from throughout the empire. You might say, why does he have them on staff? Well, the simple answer is because he needs them. No ruler can rule without other people's help. He's limited. He's not God. And that fact alone ought to encourage us because God has made sure that there is a de facto balance of power in any kingdom that is around. Now, if Nebuchadnezzar had had his way, he probably would just assume that he was the only one who was ruling. God makes that impossible. Uh, he didn't give these jobs out out of charity. He gave them out because he needed these people. Now, it's not just Nebuchadnezzar who needs them. They are dependent upon the king. See, without the king paying their salaries, they cannot do their demonic work. And each one of these people was involved in various facets of demonic work. You know, in America, there are various agencies and institutions that are doing the work of Satan. They could be axed overnight, given the right circumstances, because they're unduly dependent upon the government. That book that I mentioned earlier... Um, uh, candles uh, behind the wall 
mentions various stories of, um, uh, of communist leaders who uh, used, for example, psychiatric hospitals with the injections and different things that they would give to people to try to destroy Christianity. And yet it shows at the same time that God, with almost a sense of irony, used those very things again, to advance his purposes and to advance his, his kingdom in those countries. You might think of Planned Parenthood, for example, as a very powerful institution, and it is. But you know, a few major hits to the government pocket, and Planned Parenthood could disappear overnight. You, you think of educational system uh, in America, uh, government education as being a powerful institution, and it is, but it is totally dependent upon that government, and we'll make some applications from that. Let's look at some other ways in which humanism is weak. We see the artificial sense of security that these men had in verse 3. And the king said to them, I've had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Now, it's always a great feeling to be needed. Isn't that true? People need me. And here are these people, see the king coming along, they say, he's anxious for our services. He needs us. We're important. We're indispensable. And in a few moments, they discover they're not all that dispensable after all because they don't have the wisdom that's necessary to deal with the problems that they are up against. And you know, in God's good timing, all of the agencies which humanism needs to promote its agenda can be jettisoned overnight because of their failed policies. Uh, I've had some people complain to me about the... Um, <clears throat> just rank demonism that is taught at certain courses at UNO. And with such arrogance and with such a confidence and dogmatism, you know, that dogmatism and that security could vanish overnight if it, could, if it served God's purposes. And next week we're going to be seeing how it's so essential that Christians be ready and prepared and trained to stand in the gap and give the answers when nobody else has answers. And we'll be looking at that a little bit uh, further on. Okay, verses 4 through 11, we see attempts of the wise men and Nebuchadnezzar to manipulate each other, and many times people are successful at that, and yet eventually it will backfire. Uh, here we see the wise men ending up, by, when they're trying to manipulate the king, ending up infuriating that king to the point where their necks are on the line. We see the king trying to manipulate them, and he puts himself in a box that he can't get out of. And let's just go ahead and uh, read those verses, verses 10 through 11. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Nope, that's not it. Five through six, there we go. But the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. And just think, let's stop there for a second. Just think of the number of politicians who wish they had not been so dogmatic, that I will never do such and such a thing, and down the road, they wish they could do it or end up lying. But you know, God can even use those very things. But here he says, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made in ashes. There's the negative incentive. Here's the positive. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. He thinks he can manipulate, but he ends up boxing himself in in a way that he can't get out. And I think it is such a good illustration of the weakness of humanism. Another thought. 
He thinks he has power of life and death over these wise men, and he does in a certain sense, and yet he fears them. In verse 9, second sentence, he accuses them. He says, For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. He feels manipulated by them. They're a threat to him, and he fears them with good reason. If you study the history of that period, you find that assassinations usually came from two sources. This group of people or the military. One of those two groups of people. You know, when I was younger, I used to think of the one world uh, conspiracy as being so united, so powerful, and so clever that it was unstoppable. I used to think of communism as being unstoppable. And that really is a silly notion when you think about it and analyze it. Even if we were to be overtaken by one world government, maybe under the United Nations, God could undo that so easily. He could undo it. I mean, think of the problems that could come up with the language barriers and uh, the geographical barriers, and the the racial conflicts, and the graft, and the corruption. I mean, there's so many ways in which God could undo the conspiracies of Satan to destroy the church, and just like in the book of Esther, turn things around where the very gallows that were used to hang, uh, was supposed to hang Mordecai, ended up hanging the humanist himself. And so, uh, again, we need to be confident that God is in control. I've totally forgotten where I was. What point am I on? (laughs) Okay. Verses 10 through 11. Don't think I've dealt with that one yet. Verses 10 through 11 talks about the bankruptcy of the world's wisdom. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requires, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, the humorous thing about that is the whole reason why they have their jobs is because somehow they have contact with the gods. And here it becomes clearly evident the bankruptcy of their wisdom. And you know, down through history, there have been numerous wise men, you know, counselors to politicians and to others who have been axed from administrations because they have not had the wisdom of, because of their failed theories. And it's during times like that that Christians need to be ready to step in and fill the gap like Daniel did. And yet have we studied the biblical blueprints to be able to do that? Are we really ready as Christians, I do not believe the church in America is ready. And we need to do everything that we can to influence people with the biblical blueprints from the Old Testament. Now again, we're going to look at that next week, but I want to end by pointing out that this section pits Babylon against Babylon, humanists against humanists, a kingdom divided, verses 12 through 13. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave a command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the king went out, and they began killing the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Now, everything we've looked at today shows that paganism is self-defeating. And I find that point so encouraging. Things do not run well in pagan governments. They never have, and they never will. You know, China and Russia would not have survived as long as they have without the constant uh, loans uh, without the, the the cheap grain that we export, the technology that we export to those countries. Uh, communist Angola 
uh, would not be the problem that it is if it wasn't for our Western support. And free Angola would not have a problem. Um, you know, southern Sudan would not have the problem that it does if it wasn't for Western governments propping up the, the tyranny of the northern government. And you know, what we find when we look at any pagan government in the Old Testament, including Judah and Israel, when they became paganized, is that they fall of their own bureaucratic weight. It always happens over and over again. And we may fear big government because of the power that it has when it uses your money to buy votes and to promote uh, wicked agendas. And yet again, the ability to do that could dry up overnight. Just think about this. Think about the enormous amount of money we spent on one little war, the Gulf War, and the money that we spent on uh, relief for the earthquake in California and for oh, a couple of hurricanes and a flood and a drought. It was an enormous amount of money. Now, we've basically had very little in the way of disasters. If you were to ratchet the number of disasters up and throw in a war or two more, you could see that overnight it would be impossible to fund some of the demonic programs that they are presently funding, like Planned Parenthood. God can do that overnight. Uh, like the Tower of Babel, which, by the way, chapter 1 points out, was not only the spiritual, but it was the physical ancestor for Babylon. It was in the plains of Shinar, both of them. Just like the Tower of Babel was scattered by God bringing confusion and division in the, in the tribes, God can do that today as well. Now, the reason that is true is because of the spiritual principalities and powers that are behind all of these things. And later on in the book, Daniel spells that out a whole lot more clearly. See, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The reason there is more and more humanism in the physical realm is because of the satanic forces that are there. And God calls us to engage in spiritual warfare with all of our might. And He encourages us by saying that greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. And so when you face the tigers of life, you need to keep in mind that God is with you and those tigers fear the Almighty who was within you. And so this is a passage really not to despair, but it's a passage to hope. Later on it gives us even more hope, but it says it is not an invincible enemy and it's really blasphemy to think of any power today as an invincible enemy. God has given us all of the resources, not only to hope for victory in the future, but the resources to take on those tigers in the present, in the darkness that we may have to go through. May God gain all the glory through the efforts that we uh, seek to put forth toward that end.